Australia's border closure was one of the Morrison government's best decisions in responding to the pandemic. It was a big decision, but the right one. Tight border controls have given Australia the best of both worlds, little community transmission and a domestic economy largely unencumbered by COVID. Now Victoria has just emerged from a five-day lockdown caused by a breach in hotel quarantine that follows similar breaches in Sydney, Brisbane and Perth over the summer months. At the same time, there have been fresh calls each week for more people to arrive in Australia from overseas. Citizens unable to return home, universities desperate for international students to return, and workers from the Pacific to pick the harvest, otherwise left to rot in the fields. So, how can we fix hotel quarantine? And what do the current arrangements mean for migration in the coming months? I'm Kat Clay, and today on the podcast we have Brendan Coates, Household Finances Program Director, back for a second week in the row. So he's a glutton for punishment, aren't you, Brendan? Thanks, Kat. And joining him today is Migration Fellow, Henry Sherrell. And welcome to your first Grattan podcast, Henry. Thanks, Kat. So, Brendan, we'll start with talking about the hotel quarantine situation. What's happened with quarantine? How was it set up and how has it changed? So the quarantine was set up essentially at the end of March uh, 2020, so going on 10, 11 months ago. Um, And it was part of Australia's quite effective strategy in responding to COVID. We basically shut the borders, required everyone to go through 14 days hotel quarantine uh, in order to limit the prospect of COVID getting out of the community. And by and large, it's been pretty effective. You know, compared to most countries in the world, Australia is doing pretty well. We don't have a lot of COVID. Community transmission is essentially zero. Uh, And that means things can be much more open than they otherwise would be because we know at the end of the day that if you don't succeed in containing COVID, then the economy takes the hit anyway because people voluntarily choose not to go out and about. So we do have, as you said, essentially the best of both worlds. Um, But what's striking is how little the hotel quarantine system has in fact changed since it was set up in literally two days uh, at the end of March last year. So the system of of hosting people in our major cities has remained largely unchanged. There have been some tweaks around the edges. And the question you should ask is, like, really, is that the best that we can do? Because I think what's become very clear over the last few months as we've had these repeated breaches is the constraint on quarantine and therefore the constraint on on people coming back into the country. It's not about, you know, the number of hotel rooms you've got and have the police officers you can get to guard them. It's about the risk of COVID re-emerging in the community. It's the risk of that community outbreak that then requires quite costly uh, spatial distancing measures, public health measures, lockdowns in a lot of cases, in order to eradicate or eliminate COVID again from the community and things can go on to normal. And so given that those costs and those risks are so high, uh, and they are really high, we're talking about, you know, in the stage four lockdown last year in Melbourne, the estimates were up to a billion dollars a week of foregone economic activity. So that was estimates from the Treasury. I think they were probably a bit on the high side. Um, the, the lockdown we just had last week was would have been nowhere near as costly because it's a week and people can adjust either side of what they're going to do. Um, but it's clear that this is the number one risk to Australia's COVID strategy and the, therefore the number one risk to uh, the economy over the next six to 12 months. Um, and beyond the immediate risk of the, the, the actual effect of lockdowns, you've got this um, lingering risk. I think Australians now conditioned after the last few months uh, where you've had lockdowns and snap border closures across Australia in, you know, in WA, in Queensland, in New South Wales, in Victoria, 
you you have this looming expectation, this uncertainty, pall of uncertainty that's cast over everything. That people aren't booking holidays to Queensland for for June, July because they don't think they'll be able to go, uh, and that those economic costs extend those costs extend the economic costs of the of of the COVID recession. They mean it's having a more enduring effect uh, than it normally would, and the risk has arguably gotten worse essentially because we've got more infectious strains now. So the UK strain, the South Africa strain, even if the quarantine was fit for purpose four months ago, and I'm not sure that that's, I don't really think that's true, um, it's now a much harder task to manage it in Australia because the risk with a more infectious strain is that it's more likely to get out and you impose all those costs on the community from those quarantine failures. And therefore, it really should be almost our number one priority along with the vaccine roll out in terms of both for health and for the economy in the coming six months. So, Brendan, I'm going to ask you that question you posed. Essentially, can we do better? How can we improve quarantine? So the first step is really to fix the hotel quarantine itself. So, you know, we now know that uh, aerosol spread is a big thing, um, which means we need to upgrade those uh, the management process and the protection of staff in quarantine hotels. So it's striking. We actually have these hot hotels at the moment where essentially once you are seen uh, um, diagnosed as having COVID, you get a positive test, you're moved to these hot, hotel, hot hotels and the procedures and the process are much more robust. And we haven't had outbreaks there, even though you know everyone in that hotel has COVID, uh, every, every uh, return traveller. And so you should be able to lift the average level of any hotel quarantine to something approaching the hot hotels. And that would be a start. But secondly, you probably don't want people in hotels in the first place if they're at high risk of having COVID. We should move them out of hotels into regional areas uh, because the, the ventilation systems, look, they really aren't up to the task. Uh, and also quarantine infectious arrivals in the middle of our major cities, you know, when Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth make up almost two thirds of Australia's population and definitely two thirds of the economy, it puts like the whole community at an unacceptably high risk. Because as soon as you have a lockdown in, of any small size, because if you, if you have any kind of outbreak that gets out of the community, in a city of 5 million people, you've got to lock down the whole city, um, which means you're taking out 10, 20, 30% of Australia's economic activity at any one time. Whereas if you were locking down a small country town or a regional area, because you'd th- probably think about putting a quarantine facility in a regional area that, no- that isn't actually in a population centre, it just gives you the space to build it and run it properly, uh, then you're only talking about probably locking down an area of 20,000 people. And while that's is obviously very costly for those involved. If we think of the recent lockdowns in Victoria, it was the whole state. Uh, and so if we can limit the, the consequences of what will probably still be inevitable, inevitable outbreaks from hotel quarantine, we can at least make sure that we minimise those costs. And third, we really do need to be much more stringent in how people who are working in quarantine can move within the community. Uh, the costs are clearly very high for the risk of that spread. And the way we should do that is think of it like a fly and fly out model. You know, people work on a quarantine facility on site for a couple of weeks. Uh, then, then they, you know, they go into quarantine themselves and then they can go home. Now, that's obviously a huge impost, uh, but we do this all the time for fly and fly out workers for, say, mining sites in the Pilbara. And the trick is you've just got to compensate people appropriately. So maybe the salary for a cleaner has to be 120 grand rather than 30 or 40 or 50 grand. And that's something that's worth paying because if you do it that way, you avoid the, the, the cost of avoiding even a single week of a stage four lockdown like we had in Melbourne last week 
would make this entire exercise worth it. The returns to investing in this to make it better are just through the roof, given how large the potential costs are of, of lockdowns from community transmission. If we can avoid that, it's definitely a price that's worth paying. I think you make a very strong case there for the economic trade-off of moving it out of a urban centre. Now, the Victorian government is proposing these purpose-built facilities for managing COVID. Is it worth building these, especially with the vaccines being rolled out soon? I think the answer is the answer is probably yes. Uh, of course, of any facility that you build that's purpose-built, it will start small and then it's how much capacity you add to it over time. So you could set one of these things up with a small amount of capacity pretty quickly. And it's about, you know, how do you go from 100 people on site to 500 to 2,000? And that's where a lot of the time would be. Now, it's certainly the case that uh, the vaccines hopefully will mean that in six months, eight months' time, we are no longer worried about community transmission of COVID because the vaccines appear to be very effective uh, of presenting, uh, preventing severe illness and death. And so then you might be in a world in a few months' time where COVID just looks like the flu and uh, where a lot of people catch the flu, but it doesn't have severe consequences that warrant lockdowns and the public health response we've done to date. Um, but that's probably not going to happen until the second half of 2021 because of the, the pace of the vaccine rollout, which has probably been slower than we would like. And so the risk is really um, the prospect of further community transmission of COVID during the winter, particularly in the southern states where it gets cold and we know that COVID uh, spreads more quickly in cold temperatures. So it depends how quickly you can set it up. If you could set up something of a decent size within three months or four months, it's definitely worth doing, uh, basically because then you could have it in place for winter, which is when we're really at risk, I think, of, a, of another wave, particularly if you get uh, more virulent strains. Um, there are stopgaps that we should be thinking about that haven't been used, which is to use military bases, uh, which are obviously the domain of the federal government, to build quicker, uh, to build up some of these uh, quarantine facilities out of Melbourne, out of Sydney, out of Brisbane faster than we, than we have been to date. So there are interim steps you could take short of building an entire facility. But the other reason you probably want to think about an entire facility anyway is if there are more violent strains that make the vaccines ineffective or if you have a future pandemic, you're going to need these facilities in future as well. You know, we used to have quarantine stations uh, because in the age of infectious diseases, particularly, you know, before World War II, you know, we used to quarantine people at Point Nepean and places like that in order to avoid that disease spreading into the community. So it's hard to see the cost not being worth the return, given the cost is probably $100 million. And as long as you avoid one week of quarantine of lockdown, you've probably saved, saved the money. Uh, the other thing that the federal government should do is create these surge capacity facilities, which is something the Holton Review of um, Hotel Quarantine recommended last year, uh, which would mean that not all states necessarily have to do all the work themselves. You could have facilities that you could funnel people into um, that could then go, once they're quarantined, they can go out to the rest of Australia, which is kind of how the uh, Howard Springs facility in the Northern Territory is working today. My biggest query was like, you know, if we build these things, it's going to take months to build them and then we were all already going to be vaccinated by then. But I think you make a good point in that we're talking about future pandemics that, you know, having them there would actually prepare us for if this happened again in the future, if there's more virulent strains. And I think that's a really important point to focus on, that it's not just a one and done and it's going to be mothballed. It's certainly something that would have been useful to have at the start of this pandemic when we started the hotel quarantine program. So my question for you then is, can we expect the private sector to do this all? 
Yeah, so as you said, Kat, I think we should think of this as insurance. So even if these facilities are not used again uh, from September onwards, given the risk that is not insubstantially get future strains, it's probably worth building them anyway, even if they are not used. That's an insurance policy that you're getting that has a huge payoff in the event they're necessary. And if you don't need them, that does not mean they've been a failure. It means that you, you are saving it for a future pandemic. Now, can the private sector be expected to do it? But look, there's been proposals that have come out from in Avalon Airport, so between Melbourne and Geelong, a similar proposal in Queensland for, for private businessmen to suggest, well, you can use our facilities. I think we should you know, take those uh, proposals seriously about whether they are the right location, but I would be very, I'd be fairly sceptical that the private sector can actually run these facilities, basically because you've got a problem of contracting. If the, if the quarantine facility is not designed well or it's not managed well and we get COVID into the community, that's a huge externality that's borne by the whole community. Uh, and it's really hard to imagine writing a contract that really incentivizes that private business to run it to the standard that you want to run it to in order to avoid that. So if you think of, um, you know, the whole hoo-ha over security guards last year and the Victorian quarantine, you know, that was ultimately a failure of, of contract management. Like theoretically, you could have designed a contract that said you must do these things, the guards must take, fulfill these procedures, and if you don't do them, there are financial penalties. Now, in the case of a quarantine facility like this, the financial penalties would have to be enormous. Uh, you know, you'd almost have to get, you know, if it's Lindsay Fox owning Avalon, posting a $500 million bond that he loses every time, so a, a large share of every time you've got a quarantine breach. Now, I don't think that's a contract you can write, and so therefore probably government should just run it. Henry, I want to turn to you because I think there's a bigger question as well around hotel quarantine, and that's the issue of migration. So what has this quarantine situation meant for migration in Australia? You know, in March last year, the borders were essentially closed uh, with, you know, with the exception of people coming through hotel quarantine. And what that's meant is this sort of immediate shock to the system in terms of people crossing the border. So in December 2019, we had over 2 million people uh, entering Australia. And in December last year, we had 20,000. So it's a 99% reduction. Uh, it's just a, it's a massive change. Um, so how uh, people come to Australia has, has basically stopped. And the only people who can come now uh, are sort of funneled into this hotel quarantine system. Um, the processes around this are, you know, to be completely honest, you know, quite difficult to understand. It, it's hard to figure out exactly how you get a spot. Um, there's this sort of role where the commercial airlines are playing. There's a role where the Australian government's playing. Uh, and, you know, we've heard lots of stories about people, you know, not being able to afford a ticket because the only way you can get a spot is, is through the first class system on a, on a carrier that's still traveling. A lot of the carriers aren't traveling at all. So there's, there's very little capacity. And you combine that with the rules from the Australian government around how many people you can have on a flight. And it makes this capacity constraint very, very difficult, which is why you've seen this you know, massive drop off in numbers. So I think a really important point to note is even if we do hotel quarantine better, and even if we increase the capacity, which are hard things to do, as Brendan's just explained, it's still, it's still going to be sort of like a tiny drop in a very big bucket. Um, and that's important to note because uh, and basically until someone coming in uh, across the border, their risk of that person not creating another community outbreak, until that risk is basically zero uh, through vaccinations and, uh, and, and other things, um, it's going to be hard to see how migration goes sort of back to normal. 
So there's still time, I think, for this to play out. Uh, you know, I think if people's expectations are that, you know, as soon as you've got a vaccination, you know, things will sort of go back to normal. But it's going to take a, a while for this to happen. The federal government's already said, you know, you, you shouldn't expect international travel this year. Uh, and as Brendan mentioned, you know, if we have different strains and different outbreaks, uh, it, it could be longer than that as well. So it's very hard when you're looking at this hotel quarantine system to expand the numbers, you know, quickly, particularly from high-risk countries. You know, there were at the start of, of this process thoughts about travel bubbles from countries where you didn't have outbreaks. But we've seen even with New Zealand, you know, in practice, it's a sort of a neat theoretical concept, but it's a very, very hard practical concept. And the Australian government uh, has made some changes. The New Zealand government's made some changes. And when governments are not on the same page, those travel bubbles are, are basically impossible uh, to to work. And we've seen that in other parts of the world as well, in, in Southeast Asia. So there is some flexibility with people from countries you know, that don't have COVID, but a lot of the Pacific has been largely COVID-free, we think. We're, we're not perfectly sure on, on whether the testing rates and, and how that works. But, you know, those people are also coming to Australia through through hotel quarantine at the moment. Uh, there's been some very small pilots in Queensland around you know, people from Vanuatu isolating on farms, um, but that's not the norm uh, and it's not a widespread practice. So it's, you know, the main thing is there's been this big drop off and it's very hard to see how we could do things, you know, sort of very differently because the risks are so high. So given these constraints then, who have we prioritised to come to Australia? So the federal government has you know, very publicly prioritised getting stranded Australians home uh, and they've been pretty successful in managing to do that with the capacity that we have. But the major problem with Australians overseas is that they, there's more of them. Every month, more people want to come home and that adds to the list of people. So at the start of uh, the the pandemic and the border closures, we got to about 30,000 people at one stage in June last year who wanted to come home. And even though those 30,000 people have mostly come home, we now have about 40,000 people who want to come home because you know over time, more, more people want to come home, particularly as other countries have lived through the worst of COVID. So you had an increasing number of Australians in countries like America and the UK who wanted to get out well after the border had shut because the situation was turning so badly. So it's been a real you know, difficulty to get those people home. Um, Australia has taken a different set of policy approaches than some other countries in terms of repatriation flights and, and, and quarantine facilities and, and the way you would quarantine these people. And so that has meant that people have missed out and that people have not been able to get home. There have been a couple of other small groups who have been prioritised. You see, you know, sort of constant public uh, news stories about fruit and, and horticulture industries, particularly over those harvest months uh, late last year and into this year. Um, there have been some small schemes which have tried to get people from the Pacific into Australia. We've had uh, charter flights out of Vanuatu and some other countries uh, into the Northern Territory. Uh, we've had a deal between the Victorian government and the Tasmanian government where the Tasmanians are quarantining Victorian farm workers. Um, so we have seen this, um, but it's it's hard to understand why farm workers, I think, have been prioritised over other groups um, because th th there's there's one argument that they'll help the farms, um, but the you know the benefits are going directly to the farmers themselves uh, as opposed to being more dispersed throughout the community, and and uh, 
we haven't really had a conversation about well who should who should get to come to Australia you know while we have a very limited uh, capacity and uh, after if the Australians who are stuck overseas manage to get home what what are we going to do and how are we going to do this so are these the right groups of people to prioritize and if not, who should we be prioritising in terms of coming back to Australia? I think the stranded Australians are, are definitely the right group to prioritise and, and that's, everyone's on the same page there. But I think for farm workers, the answer is probably not. Um, you know, skilled workers uh, and, and international students uh, provide sort of bigger benefits for the community at large and those benefits are dispersed across a bigger range of people. Uh, the benefits of people working on farms go directly to the farmers themselves. Um, so you have a, a relatively smaller benefit going to a smaller group of people um, than than other areas uh, who have also been highly affected uh, and disproportionately affected if you think about the higher education sector and if you think about some other areas uh, compared to horticulture. So what about me getting my grapes, Henry? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, there are some effects, you know, pro- you know people will pay uh, more for fruit if it's harder uh, to get from the farm in, into, you know, Coles and Woolies and Audi. Um, that's undoubtedly true. Uh, we didn't see major price rises. You know, we didn't see something equivalent to Cyclone Yazi where bananas were, you know, 10, 12, $14 a kilo. It's etched in my memory from a, from a long time ago. Um, we didn't see that over the summer. Uh, and But there are concerns from the horticultural community that, uh, as Brendan was talking about earlier, if this border closure persists, uh, it will be particularly severe into the future. So it, it may be the case that, that we'll see some changes there and you'll see some increase in prices and lower uh, quantities of fruit and vegetables provided. But even if that's the case, you know, the, there are different benefits from other, other people coming into Australia uh, and those benefits from we've, we've started looking at some of these questions and uh, we think that those benefits are larger for other groups of people uh, and those people are sort of skilled workers uh, in, in jobs that require sort of a lots of experience uh, and potentially also international students uh, who, who often spend a lot more money in Australia through their course fees and their living arrangements than a farm worker and those benefits are, are sort of bigger for the Australian community than you will get uh, from a farm worker. So yeah, just to jump in there, Kat, um, it does strike me that if we could fix quarantine and you get some of the, you can increase, get the, get in, uh, stranded Australians home and then beyond that in a safe way, start to look at, okay, we managed to get them home and it didn't blow up into a whole bunch of um, risk of community, infect, rise of community infection. So like the Howard Springs facility has basically had, as far as I'm aware, no outbreaks, uh, which is a pretty effect, impressive thing, given you're talking about a couple of thousand people going through there every couple of weeks. Um, if you could increase the capacity, you could get some big benefits because we know that, you know, the average, uh, the average uh, skilled migrant is, you know, paying a whole bunch of tax, not getting a huge amount, not drawing a huge amount of government services. The fiscal benefits to the community are really large. There's potentially productivity spillovers. And if you compare that to like farm workers, they also come here for a long time. So for a single border crossing, which is the thing that's actually the constraint, you actually get probably a lot more benefit from a permanent migrant coming in and staying here for 30, 40 years than a seasonal worker who's here for, you know, three, six months and then goes home. Uh, so there is a huge benefit here if we invest properly. And then the selection, you could just get, you could get, we're not, we are skewing the selection probably towards the, those groups that are more vocal, uh, like 
agriculture is a big place in Australian cultural life. They are a vocal lobby. Uh, there are clearly costs to not having seasonal workers here, but it doesn't strike me that rationing the place to that cohort rather than to permanent migrants or skilled migrants makes a lot of sense. And certainly, too, Australia is now a very attractive place to be in compared to other countries' response to coronavirus. People want to come here. So, Henry, I'm just going to turn to you for the final question for today. What will COVID mean for migration in the long term here? Uh, it's a very big question, Kat, and <laughs> there's lots, lots of uncertainty, I think. Uh, this has been a really sort of interesting question for people who are interested in immigration across the world is you know, we've never really seen a shock like this in the modern context. So, you know, if the borders reopen as, you know, when the government thinks that they will, uh, out to about 2030, we're going to see 1 million fewer people in Australia. That's the sort of 10, you know, 10-ish year projection from the Treasury. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a, it's a decent number of people over a 10-year period to not have in the country. Um, but that's one way to look at it, sort of the aggregate, uh, nature, but I think you hit on a really important point with that question is when the borders reopen, there's a decent chance that more people across the world are going to choose Australia relative to other places if 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 we've come through this uh, in a better way. So particularly if the economic effects linger in other like high income countries, you know, if particularly in, in the States and in the UK and in parts of Europe, if those economic effects of COVID linger longer than they do in Australia, Australia becomes a relatively better place to be. We saw this in the GFC. Um, Australia performed relatively better uh, than many other countries. And what happened is we had um, a very large surge of European backpackers turn up because it was, it was better to come to Australia. There's a higher chance of getting a job. Uh, we're just talking about farms. That they a lot of them worked on farms, uh, and the wages were higher as well. So it was a more attractive option, and that's one group of people. But when people are in skilled professions, when they're in professional services work, uh, international students, uh, the same types of motivations are, are pushing, you know, or pulling people to Australia. So it, I think, uh, it'll be a hard thing to distinguish exactly what is. Um, you know, pushing people to come to Australia. But I think that that's likely. And I think in Australia as well, um, you'll see businesses and economic sectors who are disproportionately affected by immigration start to become very loud to go back to the status quo. You know, they're going to want to go back to normal as quick as possible. So the construction sector, the tourism sector, the horticultural sector, the higher education sector, you know, these are large um, parts of our economy and our society. But uh, it's a really important question to ask now whether we should just go back to normal. Um, uh, we are working on a report at the moment uh, and we think this is a really important window of time, an opportunity which Australia has um, to, to make changes and to improve the status quo. We don't just want to go back to what we've done. We want to make it better. Uh, and it's easier to do that now, like while the music stopped, than if we go back to normal and then we just sort of hope that things will improve over time. So what, what we're looking at questions like, you know, how can immigration affect uh, economic uh, domains like the labour market and productivity and uh, the fiscal position uh, and also social outcomes. You know, we have a almost a two-year wait at the moment for partner visas 
uh, and what effect does that have on, on people's lives and, and how they live their lives in Australia? So uh, these are pretty big questions. Uh, and uh, for Australia, you know, we have three in 10 people were born overseas. It's, it's a very high share and, and migration is a sort of a, an intimate part of, of who we are. Uh, for good or for ill, uh, according to who you are, you, you know, some people see these things differently. Um, so that, that's what we're working on at the moment and, and hopefully we'll have our report out uh, soon. Uh, we should also acknowledge the um, support of the Susan McKinnon Foundation, which is funding some of that work that we're going to do on migration in the coming months. You might also be wondering why the Household Finances Program is getting involved in this space. I suspect we will probably be changing the name in the next few weeks. Uh, because we are looking at questions like migration, uh, the macro economy, uh, but certainly we couldn't do that work without Susan McKinnon Foundation helping fund the report and um, hopefully we can show it to you soon. That's exciting news, Brendan, and thank you again to the Susan McKinnon Foundation for the generous support. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brendan and Henry, for your expertise in coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate it and look forward to hearing more on your report on migration and the new and improved household finances department. You can follow our conversation and continue talking to us on social media, on Twitter at Grattan Inst and on LinkedIn and Facebook because our page has been reinstated at Grattan Institute. Grattan Institute is a non-profit organisation and we rely on support from our generous listeners and viewers like you. If you would consider donating to Grattan Institute, you can visit grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. And as always, take care and thanks so much for listening.